Welcome to the Fertility Journeys podcast. Here's Dr. Shala Salem. I get a lot of questions from patients about endometriosis. So I was really excited to be able to speak with Dr. Tayeba Ahmed. She's been treating pelvic pain since the inception of pelvic rehabilitation medicine. Amongst my friends, I hear it all the time. Oh, my mom and my sister. I ask patients all the time, tell me about your mom's period. Mm -hmm. Tell me about if anyone had hysterectomies, surprisingly or unexpectedly. Majority of patients don't get into period pain with their family. So some do, some don't, but you know, having that conversation, reaching out to your family, your maternal lineage to see if, if that's along the family side. And then sometimes they come back and their follow-up and they say, you know what, I found that my aunt has it, my cousin has it, and I don't know whether they're going to do anything about it, I want to do something about it, so. I know the fertility journey is not easy. Many suffer in silence, walking that line between hope and devastation. More often than we know, the path to building a family is met with challenges. I'm Dr. Shala Salem, and for over a decade, I have been helping people just like you on their fertility journey. As a physician and a PCOS warrior who's gone through my own fertility struggles, I am passionate about helping to support your mental and physical well-being, foster your resilience, and help you maintain your sense of self on this difficult journey. I created this podcast to support you. Each week, you can learn from our expert guests about proven holistic and integrative methods to nurture your mind, body, and spirit. And hear women share their own stories to remind you that you are not alone. Welcome to Fertility Journeys. So I get a lot of questions from patients about endometriosis. It's definitely a topic I deal with a lot for infertility patients. And today I'm going to be speaking with a physiatrist. So it's not too often that you find a physiatrist who's specialized in pelvic medicine. So I was really excited to be able to speak with Dr. Tayeba Ahmed. She's a doctor of physical medicine and rehabilitation. And she was born and raised in New York, and she completed the BSDO program at New York Institute of Technology and was trained at the New York College of Osteopathic Medicine, Northwell Health Plainview Hospital, and the NYU Langone Medical Center, Rusk Institute for Rehabilitation. A board-certified physical medicine rehabilitation physician, Dr. Ahmed is also a fellow of Academy of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation and a member of the International Pelvic Pain Society. Dr. Ahmed is contributing author to a textbook, which is considered a staple during every physiatrist training. She's been treating pelvic pain since the inception of pelvic rehabilitation medicine in early 2017. She was nominated as a New York Rising Stars in 2019 and 2020, and she has advocated on the importance and need for pelvic education on a variety of podcasts, including Rusk Insight. Welcome, Dr. Ahmed. I really appreciate you being here today. It's a really important topic. You specialize in pelvic pain. Tell me a little bit how you got interested in physical medicine rehabilitation, and then why did you decide to go in the route of pelvic medicine? I kind of stumbled upon physiatry. I'm a DO, I'm an osteopath. So naturally, we have to take a very holistic approach. When it got to my fourth year, I did not know what I wanted to do, and a friend actually I'd recommended a rotation that I, she had done and said that you might like this field. I was actually applying pediatrics and anesthesia and I got very frustrated because I didn't really care for those fields. 
and I didn't know what else I wanted to apply. And then I ended up doing residency, graduating, and I did sports medicine for about five years. Five years into it, one of my colleagues who started pelvic rehabilitation medicine, which is the company that I work for now, she had asked if I wanted to shadow her. We both had children during our residency training. She had some SI joint and pelvic pain from it. And we got to talking about how there's no actual treatment postpartum and for pelvic pain in general. So if you have like a pelvic surgery or a hysterectomy, there's really no like treatment. And where we are, things has changed so much dramatically in the last five years that I've been mm-hmm. doing this, that now there's so many opportunities for pelvic physical therapy. And so essentially there were pelvic physical therapists treating women, but it was hard to find. And it was hard to find people to guide them because there was just physical therapists kind of doing their thing. Mm-hmm. and no overseeing it. Whereas yeah. in residency, I learned about all these different fields, traumatic brain injury, sports medicine, and there was always a physiatrist overseeing the physical therapists, social workers, and the occupational therapists. And, and we, we created a, a rehab team and goal. And then when we started seeing all the women, the men showed up, and we started seeing that there was actually a huge need for pelvic health in general for both mm-hmm. men and women. Yeah. That's really important because honestly, I, even as a gynecologist, oftentimes we're not referring to pelvic medicine specialists as we should be. Tell us a little bit about what you do for patients who have endometriosis and why it's important to work with a physician like yourself. So every time a patient comes in, sometimes they don't know they have endometriosis and So with every patient, I start with a blank slate. They do an intake, but I don't actually really look at it often. And I'm trying to figure out what their symptoms are and what's their cause. So if they have painful intercourse, that could be Mm -hmm. the one thing that brought them to my office. But if they also mention they have these horrendous menstrual cycles that put them out for days, or they didn't think that it was correlated to the painful intercourse, then we Mm kind of go back and start talking about urinary symptoms, their bowels, asking about fatigue or nausea or bloating and all of this stuff comes up. And then for many patients, they've never even heard the word endometriosis. And now I have to tell them, well, Mm -hmm. after discussing all this stuff with you, you have a lot of the things that a person with endometriosis could have. Mm -hmm. Now I cannot guarantee you have endometriosis that only be done on a laparoscopic biopsy. But that being said, for many patients, I can do a clinical diagnosis, which often I'm usually right. And I tell patients, I think a 95% chance that you might have endometriosis or you can't rule it out because you have blah, blah, blah. And you know, you can have endometriosis without the urinary symptoms. You can right. have bowel issues, or you could have endometriosis with good periods because mm-hmm. you could be on birth control, which is silencing your endometriosis. Right. So that conversation and spending the time, because I spend about an hour and 15 with a new patient. So mm-hmm. we're able to decipher what are their symptoms? When did you on birth control? How old were you? When did you come off the birth control? And then one of the biggest things is we talk about mm-hmm. what are the reasons to take out endometriosis. And I often tell them, number one, pain, number two, fertility, mm-hmm. number three, menopause, and number four, the small chance of anything turning into an ovarian cancer. These are all important things, but 
the usual driving force is either fertility or pain and pain being super huge, but fertility, I'm sure mm-hmm. you see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think just like you said, I do see a lot of people who don't have the diagnosis, never heard endometriosis at all. And then I have this high suspicion and I'm thinking like, how did nobody notice that you may be a candidate for endometriosis when you've had vomiting with your menstrual periods and severe pain and everybody told them normal. Part of the problem is the diagnosis is not easy to get. So you have to have a laparoscopy. So large portion of patients I see have endometriosis. And I'm sure a large portion of the patients you see because they're coming to you for pain. Yeah, exactly. People used to ask, what are your percentages? And I'd say, I see about 60 to 70% of my patients are female, mm-hmm. the rest are male. And unless they're trans female, I'm mostly seeing of those 70%, maybe 40 to 50 of those are endo. Right. Because just by the nature of the game, everyone says it's one in, in 10, but it has mm-hmm. to be more than that. Because I think that there's so much misdiagnosis and underdiagnosis of endometriosis. I think it's phenomenal that we're seeing more younger and younger people coming, like they're in their 20s and mm-hmm. their teens, they're finding out about endometriosis on social media. And then I see this whole subset of women who have it, who tell me that they're like 50 and they feel all this abdominal pain and they had it all through their mm-hmm. whole life. And it sounds like they just never had it dealt with their entire life, that conversation of, is it worth pursuing an endometriosis surgery at this point? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, because most of them are either close to menopause or post-menopause and still have symptoms. I'm sure you see a gamut of symptoms for patients, which makes it sometimes more difficult because not everybody fits the typical criteria that we think of. Cause I get a lot of people, when I talk about endometriosis, they'll say, but yeah, I don't have this or I don't have that. And that's what I read online. Or my doctor told me no, because I, I don't have painful intercourse, but there's a gamut of symptoms. Can you talk to us about some of the things I knew you touched on earlier, but some of the things that you might see So I think it's hard with intercourse because understanding that endometriosis does not always have pelvic floor dysfunction with it. Majority of the time it does. And the painful intercourse and the urinary frequency and urinary urgency can be coming from the pelvic floor dysfunction, but it can also be coming from having endometriosis on the bowel and the bladder. So it's very confusing Mm -hmm. for people They just assume, oh, well, I'm not having these crazy like bladder symptoms that people talk about, but sometimes I have urinary urgency, but I don't feel pain when filling my bladder. And so Mm -hmm. understanding what pelvic floor dysfunction is and how it's often seen with endometriosis, but is totally not always there. And so for painful Mm -hmm. intercourse, If you only have had pain with your menstrual cycles for two years, sometimes you may not have pelvic floor dysfunction and sometimes Mm -hmm. it it has not progressed far enough where you're presenting with urinary symptoms. And if for some people, the clinical correlation of endometriosis doesn't always line up Mm -hmm. with how bad the endometriosis is inside of them. Minimal staged endometriosis inside and have a ton of symptoms. And so 
urinary frequency, urinary urgency, the pain with filling of their bladder, mm. feeling like you don't fully empty your bladder, burning, feeling like you're having recurrent UTI, um, pain with intercourse, with thrusting, with entrance. Some people say, I don't have pain with entrance. That all depends on your partner's size and what mm -hmm. you're doing. So for some people, they continue to have intercourse despite the pain. If you're continuing to do that, you might not find it painful. And then also mm -hmm. understanding, is it actually painful? Because I see a lot of 20-somethings who don't really consider it painful. And mm -hmm. then when they get to their 40s, they say, well, in retrospect, that was actually probably painful mm -hmm. because I have treated it and it actually feels so much better. So like your sexual partner, the depth with the penetration, or mm -hmm. do you have multiple partners? Sometimes it's with certain partners that you have more pain versus other partners. So it's hard to be like, well, just because I don't have this doesn't mean mm -hmm. the biggest one I think that people say is, well, my periods don't put me out. I'm not like, I'm not on the floor. I can't have endometriosis. And I have to say, listen, you may not be on the floor. And I often get patients who will say, I have two days of painful periods. Sounds like I could have endometriosis. Do you think I should get my eggs frozen versus taking the endometriosis out? And I think that's mm -hmm. often a very big question because a lot of people will say, well, I only have two days of period pain. The rest of the month, I feel okay. And that's where figuring out their social, socioeconomic stuff and figuring out whether the patient can freeze their eggs, whether insurance has coverage, where mm -hmm. they are in their life have a partner do they want to have a baby at some point how can they prepare for that and that's where that decision comes in because some people it's like an automatic have the excision surgery take it out and for some people it's like well you're doing pretty good you're in a good place ish right. so maybe you should freeze your eggs now while you're in a still a good place and I've often had that conversation with patients and maybe you can tell me more but I've heard that it's better to freeze your eggs before an mm. endo excision. I think most doctors would say to do it prior to, unless you're unable to for whatever reason, but prior to, because yes, it can cause a decrease in the ovarian reserve when you're removing perhaps ovarian tissue. If you have an ovarian endometrioma or something like that, then that's going to affect the healthy ovarian tissue potentially too. So yeah, there's a lot of things to consider for someone who has, you know, diagnosis. And I think the big thing is getting the diagnosis. So if you're somebody that has symptoms and you're not sure is really meeting with someone who can kind of take your symptoms seriously. Cause I think sometimes people are waiting at least, I think the average is like seven to 10 years at least to get a diagnosis, unfortunately. And some people never have the diagnosis. So they just go on and think it's normal because like part of the problem also is that you may have even gotten that information from your family saying it's normal to have pain with your periods. Maybe your mom had endometriosis or your sister and you all are like, oh, that's normal. It's just normal for us to have a one or two days of really intense pain or have the nausea. And they just accepted that as normal. A hundred percent. I hear it amongst my friends. I mean, I hear it all the time. Oh, my mom and my sister. And I ask patients all the time, tell me about your mom's period. Mm -hmm. Tell me about your grandma. If anyone in your family had hysterectomies, surprisingly, unexpectedly. Right. Um, the majority of patients don't get into period pain with their families. So some do, some don't. But, you know, having that conversation, reaching out to your family, your maternal lineage, just to see if if that's along the family side. And then sometimes they come back and if they're follow up and they say, you know what, I found out my aunt has it, my cousin has it. And I don't know wh whether they're going to do anything about it, but I want to do something about it. So 
Yeah. And even honestly, I get really surprised when I have patients who've told their symptoms multiple times to different gynecologists and nobody ever flagged it. Nobody had that conversation with them along the way. Well, you might have endometriosis, but we could consider putting you on a birth control pill or something to manage the symptoms, but no one's ever even had the conversation with them. They've all been like, oh, it's fine. No problem. And I'm sort of like, so stunned. You're a gynecologist. So imagine me, most of my patients are like, how come my GYN just put me on the pill? She didn't say mm-hmm. anything. So I always joke. And I say, listen, even with saying the F word fertility, I know you didn't hear about endometriosis and now you're hearing it from me. And then some of them are like 19 and they're like, mm-hmm. I don't want to talk about this. And mm-hmm. I say, listen, I want you to hear it one line because even if you're 19 or mm-hmm. 35 or, you know, whatever age you are, I don't want you to say that you never heard it. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just going to say my little fertility spiel and then they listen and some of them are like oh my god that was so helpful some Mm -hmm. of them are like this is overwhelming I don't know if I want kids but they get dismissed so much with endometriosis Mm -hmm. that they need to know Mm -hmm. that endometriosis does more and I feel like that's one of the hardest things as you get older to change I mean you know Mm -hmm. the pain cycles and stuff like that there's stuff that can be done mm-hmm. and if you are one of those lucky people that responds to birth control you can really have a, a better quality of life but the fertility stuff can be mm-hmm. really hard on a person if they're 40 and now trying to have a baby right. and then and then off the pill and mm-hmm. now the period worse and it's just such an emotional roller coaster Yeah. And the education piece is so important because it allows patients to make choices for themselves and to have options. Because I know that the um, American College of OBGYN kind of doesn't endorse patients getting their fertility testing done. And there's a lot of kind of back and forth about, well, if we tell patients to have their fertility testing, then we're going to have people that are going to be kind of jumping the gun because a low AMH doesn't necessarily mean you're infertile. But, you know, I have some mixed feelings about that because I think that potentially I do see patients and I'm sure you have in your situation too, of patients who unfortunately may have missed the window of time and they were not given the option. So just having the ability to have the education and have the option. And if egg freezing is right for you or creating embryos or wherever you are in your life, being able to make that decision, I think is very empowering. Yeah, a hundred percent. Well, a lot of patients. I talk to them about AMH levels and Mm -hmm. carrier screenings and we joke and I say, you know, when I had my kids 10 years ago, it was like Russian roulette babies. We didn't know what my husband had, what I had, and Mm -hmm. we just had babies. And now you don't have to do that. You can just get a carrier screening and you can see if you and your partner have different or the same stuff and if it's recessive or dominant um, and all that it's so helpful. I remember when I had done my testing like years ago, it was like only a couple hundred tests. And now it's, there's 500 different tests that they can test mm-hmm. or like, I don't even know, even more than that. So I always talk to them about AMH and I asked a couple of gynecologists, why, why don't you guys like do AMH testing mm-hmm. in college? I feel like college, grad school, it's a great time to do it. And so what I tell my patients, it's like checking your cholesterol for your egg reserves. So you should just do it every year, see if it's having like a dramatic drop. Mm-hmm. A lot of people in grad school, they tend not to go to a primary care for years on end. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden, they're like, wait, why can't I have a baby? I've been trying. And if you have 
insight that, okay, well, it is actually dropping. Maybe we should not wait until we're 38 to have a kid. Maybe we should wait till 35 to have a kid or we should yeah. start trying here. You know, at least knowledge is power and you can mm-hmm. take that information and do what you want with it. But they do say, yeah, we don't want to make patients hysterical and, and have everyone jumping the gun. And I, when I tell patients that they're like, what? No, that makes no sense. And being in medicine, we know that there's a increased risk of infertility just being in medicine. So Mm -hmm. I read a little spot on my treatment plan because I'm a pain doctor. It's a little weird, but I'm like, AMH level, get this checked. And then here in Manhattan, we're pretty lucky because there's a lot of fertility places that'll just do Mm -hmm. a consult. And they often see these patients and just, just to have like a baseline. Because yeah, the majority of patients will probably be in the okay range. But if I would have seen somebody that had the really, you know, red flag 10 years earlier, then it would have been helpful for them to be able to make decisions. Tell me a little bit about what the treatment role is for a physician like you in endometriosis. What kind of treatments do you offer for patients? For my patients, aside from diagnostics, I do imaging. We're trying to figure out if there is actually endometriosis. Majority of the time, imaging comes back negative. Mm -hmm. Um, But then we do management of the pelvic floor. I'm not a GYN, so I won't do hormonal treatment, Mm -hmm. um, but I do life treatment. So if your symptoms are urinary and a lot of urinary symptoms with endometriosis, Mm -hmm. I'm going to manage that by managing their pelvic floor. If your symptoms are bowel, talking about different bowel treatments, anal manometry, having patients start physical therapy rectally, going on magnesium, just doing the things that'll make their pelvic floor more relaxed so that they can have Mm -hmm. better bowel movement. Now, does that mean that the pain with the bowel movement might go away? Sometimes. Sometimes they're blaming it on the endometriosis and it's actually Mm -hmm. just the pelvic floor. And so if that goes away, sometimes patients can buy time from having a surgery, treating the pelvic floor, same with intercourse. So many patients will say, oh, I have pain with intercourse. It's due to the endometriosis. And then Mm -hmm. we discuss dilators. We discuss trigger point injections to the pelvic floor to make the pelvic floor relax more. And now they're using a wand and they're able to get in and their Mm partner is able to get in and have successful penetrative intercourse. Like I said, sometimes people hold off and they say, I don't necessarily want to have surgery right now. I'm feeling so good. I can function. I can have sex. I can mm-hmm. go to the bathroom. But it's always, let's go back and remember that if it's still endo, we have to take it out because at mm-hmm. some point it's going to affect the four things we mentioned. Mm-hmm. But, you know, some people that's okay because they are in college or they can't take time off right now to have a surgery. Mm-hmm. recovery is time and it's not as easy as okay well you're gonna have surgery tomorrow you're gonna take it out and then we're gonna work on your pelvic floor if a patient does all mm-hmm. the treatments for their pelvic floor before they usually come out of the surgery better so it's not like a huge shocker so if they have a 10 out of 10 pain mm-hmm. all the time crazy back pain they don't know what they can use heat i mean a lot of patients are so new in the diagnosis they don't even experiment with different things like heat or castor oil pack or different manual massage on their bellies or how to work on the scar tissue in their abdomen, the I love you massages. And so when they're learning all these things, now they go into the surgery and they come out and they're like, okay, I can go back to doing these things because it's automatic. Okay. 
everything's shut down. You can't go inside. I can give medications. I can give suppositories. Many times patients are super sensitive to the fact that they've been having pain for the last 15 years. So their brains have become kind of what we call central sensitized. And they now can't imagine not having the pain. And so we have to trick their brains into thinking that they can have no pain again. So many times nerve medications are really helpful for that for some of our patients. And since I do non-hormonal management, this is more just to treat the nervous system, to calm the nervous system down so that things can be a little bit chiller. You know, not to say that it's all in their head. They have a physical finding, they have physical pain in their pelvic floor, but their brains are so sensitized that if with endo patients, you often just touch their shoulders or touch their knees and everything just hurts all the time. And that's that classic, just being super sensitized. With some patients, by the time they're desensitized, they feel like, okay, I feel like a five out of 10. Maybe I can have the surgery in the summertime, or maybe I can hold off. And that's also depending on what they're doing. So for some people, they don't want to be on continuous birth control. Some of them want to be on it. And I just want to make sure that they get to the right gynecologist to consider these things as well, because sometimes they're thrown Orlitho or Lupron as mm -hmm. options and they don't know what they are. They don't know that the side effects that come along with it. Mm -hmm. And so they don't realize that, oh, they think that Orlitho and, and Lupron might be like the end all be all. So just so right. that they know what options are there. And I would imagine that Every patient with endometriosis will have benefit with working with a physician like you, right? So I'm sure there's not as many physicians like you. So it becomes very difficult to be able to get the type of treatment that you offer. But I, I'm sure that everybody would have a benefit because like you said, oftentimes it's just here, take this birth control pill or use Lupron or whatever. And there's not really a whole lot of resolution. Yes, some people do have resolution with those options, but I know that there's still some patients that do struggle with a lot of symptoms still. With the hormonal options, they have a ton of side effects. Not that you don't have a ton of side effects with some of the central sensitization options, but the great thing about what we do is we can always put like a nerve medication in a suppository, or we can put a muscle relaxant in a suppository. And so that will target more locally near the uterus. Mm -hmm. Now it's obviously not in the uterus, it's outside of the uterus, but a lot of our patients have adenomyosis also. Mm -hmm. And so that's a whole other conversation that a lot of times gynecologists don't discuss with patients. So mm -hmm. let's say they tell them, oh, well, you have endometriosis okay, you're going to have the surgery. You're going to feel amazing. It's going to be great. You're going to be able to get pregnant. And then nobody mentions adenomyosis. And now they're having trouble getting pregnant because it's within the uterus lining. So even just having those conversations with those patients, so they pull expectations are out there. They're not confused by what can or cannot happen because that's the worst. When I see a patient, mm -hmm. I send for endosurgery and no one's ever mentioned adeno and the possibility of having it. And even with Adam, that's something that I treat. And by treating, I don't necessarily do the uterine artery embolization or do uh, mm -hmm. an ablation inside. A lot of my patients have regular bleeding and they can't handle it. And it's just so much. And they, they have these crazy intense spasms and cramps and mm -hmm. it's hard. I've seen so much over these last few years, like the 24 year old who has the eggs frozen so she can have her hysterectomy done. And then I've seen mm -hmm. like the 38 year old who's still not sure if she wants children. And 
having had a uterine artery embolization that didn't help, but had a really good endometriosis surgery. But then I've seen like the patient who had endometriosis with bowel symptoms, who's feeling phenomenal and totally fine now. Mm-hmm. So it's hard because you want everyone to fit in this cookie cutter of a mm-hmm. diagnosis, but not everyone does. And I think that's the very frustrating part about endometriosis because they're going from doctor to doctor and hearing only hormonal options. Mm-hmm. And they don't know that there are other options for pain relief, like suppositories. Like people sometimes hold off on having surgeries because they use the suppositories and they're actually getting pain relief because the majority of doctors are only offering them a lever Motrin and they get frustrated as they should. Well, and we know we already have an issue with even getting attention to you having pelvic pain. And often people are even misdiagnosed. I mean, often I see people who've been told that I have IBS or interstitial cystitis or other diagnoses. And I'd be like, "Mm, I think maybe we should explore the idea of endometriosis. I don't know what you see in that area. A hundred percent. I see so many girls who come in their teens. and, And one of the first things I asked, were you one of those kids who had tummy aches all the time? Because I have a daughter who has tummy aches all the time. So I always think of that. Were you one of those kids who went to the nurse's office because your tummy hurt a lot? Even before your period start, were you one of those kids who just always complained to your parents about stomach aches and having diarrhea a lot and constipation? And they say, yeah, I have IBS. I'm dealing with it. And I see that they're often misdiagnosed with IBS or just it always rings a bell in your head because you're like, oh, ding, ding, ding. This is probably endo. Right. You know, because IBS is like a diagnosis of exclusion. So they kind of just go with it. But, you know, there's so much that can be done. And even with like topical creams, they can get pain relief and you can put like strong stuff in that. And so if they're having abdominal pain or abdominal bloating and they're just assuming it's IBS or IC, if they start to get relief, well, then obviously it's not really IBS or IC because I'm not giving them anything that's going in their bowels or their bladder. So there's certain topical creams that, you know, with strong medications, I mean, if anything's going to be good pain relief, it has to be strong medication. And it also has to go through the dermis so that they can penetrate deeper. But yeah, a lot of interstitial cystitis, or I think something that's tough to see is vulvodynia because a lot of patients will sometimes come in and say, oh, I have pain with sex. So I was told I have vulvodynia. So I was told I can't have endometriosis or the opposite. And so then these are all just terms. And sometimes without having an understanding of what they mean, everyone's just kind of told they have, oh, I have vaginismus. And they go in and I go in and I'm like, no, if you had vaginismus, you would not let me in. You have pain with intercourse because you have a hypertonic pelvic floor, because you have pain with your periods every month for the last 15 years. And so the easy diagnosis, Mm. let's just throw a label of vaginismus on them, or let's just throw a label of vulvodynia on them. Vulvodynia is not a diagnosis, it's a symptom. It's like just having pain in the area of the vulva. So I think a lot of people get very confused and they are walking around with all these diagnoses and they don't actually understand the difference between them. That's definitely part of the issue. It's easier to just give those diagnoses like IBS and all of that, rather than the diagnosis that endometriosis, like you said, we have to make the diagnosis by surgery. So it's always so difficult to get that diagnosis done. 
I mean, I, I can understand that. I wouldn't want my daughter to go under the knife to find out if she has endo or not, unless I really actually thought she had endometriosis. But that being said, it is a laparoscopic procedure. And, and many times I'll see patients and kind of go back to fertility here because a lot of times the fertility is what drives people to have the surgery to see because they can kind of live with five to seven days of painful periods every month, but they want a baby. All the things you talked about, the suppositories and all that, honestly, that's an area that I don't even explore. And that's not something that that I have used before until I really started listening to your work and the things that you do. And I find it so fascinating that in years prior, I would think to send my patients who maybe had issues with pelvic pain or intercourse to a physical therapist, but there's so much more that a physician like yourself, you're able to do for the patient for treatment. And how do we find a physician like yourself? Along the East Coast, if you go on the pelvicrehabilitation.com website, you can find people in my group. We're all over in Michigan, Atlanta, Florida, DC. I'm in New York City and I'm in also the Long Island office. I think what's so great about our doctors in general is like you said, physical therapists, they've been around for so long, but there's a limitation. And so majority of our patients are referred by the physical therapist Mm -hmm. because they feel that they can only go so far with a patient. And I think patients appreciate that because they don't want to be doing physical therapy for two years, three years, four years, five years. When I get referrals from fertility doctors, it's usually because the patient cannot tolerate a transvaginal ultrasound. Yeah. They can't tolerate speculums. They can't tolerate an IUI. They can't mm-hmm. tolerate a transfer because an egg retrieval is done under anesthesia. But, right. you know, some of these things. So there are often patients who just aren't even having intercourse mm-hmm. and they're going straight to fertility doctors saying, I can't have intercourse. And so my favorite is when I can help someone and then they can actually have sex. And then if they still need fertility treatment, they can still go and get that, but at least they can have some intimacy with their partner mm-hmm. if that's what they want, as opposed to just doing IUI, which feels unfortunate because for some people, I can't even imagine a life where you have to limit your intimacy and just do IUI or go straight to IVF. Mm-hmm. But that's the reality for endometriosis patients yes. because they just feel like they're trapped and they don't have time. And for them, that's, it's just a sad reality. So we often get referrals from fertility, from physical therapists. We refer out to physical therapy. We do these suppositories. We do medications. We do pelvic floor injections. So if someone needs pain relief right away, we can do different ileoguinal nerve blocks in their groin, pelvic floor injections. If they have, because of their pain for so mm-hmm. long, they now have compensated in their hips. They mm-hmm. might have sitting. So now they have a new labral tear, which is causing pain in their hips. They might be struggling with bowel movements. And like we talked about before, there's definitely different tools that they can use that can help with those bowel movements and bladder. I think it's always good to have a team leader because I think it can be very frustrating for the patient to feel like they had the surgery, they don't have an infection, they've healed. And now what? Mm-hmm. And now who am I going to talk to about my diet? And who am I going to talk to about my bladder pain? And who am I going to talk to about my pooping? Because oftentimes with surgeons, they don't have that time yeah. to do the conservative care after. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And I think sometimes patients are expecting that surgery is just going to, cause it's a big commitment to say, I'm going to go have surgery and thinking that surgery is just going to fix it all. And there's many patients with endometriosis that have surgery after surgery after surgery, which is unfortunate. A hundred percent. And that's the thing. If they're having the wrong surgery and they're having ablations mm-hmm. upon ablation, or I got, Oh, I got a one month relief from my last one. Maybe I'll try mm-hmm. it again and I'll get yeah. another month. And yeah. they don't realize ablations are not necessarily going to decrease the recurrence rate. So they're constantly going to have regrowth. So just having that conversation. And I think just knowing that and where you live, it's so hard for access for good surgeries. And, and it's, you know, unfortunate because I can't say that having ablation is a bad thing if you don't have access to an excision, but it's hard. It's really hard treating patients. I mean, I'm lucky where I am. I can treat patients mm-hmm. and have the luxury of five excision surgeries within a 10 mile radius, but right. um, it's not the case everywhere. Yeah. And some people may have to travel and they may not have access to do that or the ability to do that or the coverage to do a procedure like that, which is really unfortunate. So hopefully we'll see more in the future with more physicians because yeah, I send a lot of mine to surgeons who are able to do the appropriate job with their endometriosis because we don't want somebody to be going through multiple surgeries over and over. And especially if you get the diagnosis at a young age, by the time you get older, you might have gone through five and more surgeries. Yeah. With fertility, it's also important because the outcomes end up better if you have the endometriosis excised properly prior to the fertility treatments. Retrieval might be different, but like implantation, understanding that it is an inflammatory disease and you can put the embryo in, but there's no guarantee it's going to stay. I've seen patients who've done Mm -hmm seven to 10 embryo transfers without hearing the word endometriosis. Yeah. And then discussing with them, what are your periods like? What are your bowels mm-hmm. like? And then I think they have endo, they have their endo surgery. And to think that all of those yeah. previous embryo transfers were just a waste. Yeah, um, it's definitely. Really, it's hard to hear. I've heard people that come in there unexplained and there are years of unexplained, but never have really looked into the idea of endometriosis. A lot of those patients have endometriosis until proven otherwise, because not everybody's going to present with the standard symptoms that we were talking about. And each case is different. And so I think as a physician, you know, we're trained to look for certain things. And when somebody doesn't fit into that box, whether that be PCOS or endometriosis, we're like, nope, not, that's not it but everybody's different and everyone's going to have a different presentation. And so we have to really make sure we look thoroughly at the symptoms and evaluate everybody as a different patient and not just, nope, you're not endometriosis, especially somebody who is battling infertility or battling pelvic pain and now has been to multiple GI GI doctors. And I mean, I've seen that even people that have been referred to psychiatrists because they've been told that the pain is in their head. And that's the problem. I think a lot of times patients don't tell their doctors everything. And I think Mm -hmm. it's not blaming the patient. I do it. You know, Mm -hmm. I sometimes I'm in a rush sitting in the front when I'm getting filling in for my pap smear, I circle no all the way down and I say, probably fine. Let's go do this. But you know, even when you're going to your gyne or your OB or whoever, majority of the time you forget your questions, you forget to say stuff. If they say, oh, is there anything? I go through a whole thing and it's 20, 30, 40 questions. But then I'm like, mm-hmm. do you think there's anything else you want to tell me? Do you think I need to know anything else? Sometimes the patient will say, well, I actually can only have sex in one position. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, 
well, then the other positions count as painful sex. And they won't say mm-hmm. that I have painful sex because that one position works without pain. Right. But that doesn't count. Or like, it's like being on diabetes medication and saying, I'm not a diabetic anymore. Well, you mm-hmm. are. Or, well, I have endometriosis taken out, so I don't have endometriosis right. anymore. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the understanding that you kind of have to give the full picture because we don't see anyone else's reports unless you bring it in. And even then, if you're bringing it in right five minutes before their appointment, <laughs> how much of it are we getting to read? It's challenging because I think medicine is kind of like healthcare is a little broken in the U.S. And so mm-hmm. we're not all connected. It's hard to, as doctors, to know. And then it depends on who you're going to for all mm-hmm. your other things. Are they giving mm-hmm. you the time of day or, or are you spending 10 minutes with them? Yeah. And just saying three things that they want to hear. Yeah. I think it's important to really try to advocate for yourself. I mean, as you said, I know as a patient, sometimes I'll be upset by something and then I'll just let it slide. Once I see the doctor, (laughs) you have to really know to advocate for yourself. If you feel like you're not being heard, finding a doctor who will listen to you, finding someone you're comfortable with, just because your sister or your friend goes to this doctor and they like her or him doesn't mean that's the doctor for you. So finding the doctor, someone that you're going to be comfortable with that can listen to your symptoms. And if you've been told, no, it's not endometriosis by someone, but you still are dealing with pain, getting another opinion. Because as we said, sometimes there's patients that are going through eight doctors. I've had patients have gone to 12 doctors and no one really talked about endometriosis. Even more. I mean, I have patients who say my doctor, I'm 27. My doctor says there's no way I'm too young to have endometriosis. Mm -hmm. Every endo patient does not fit one So for mm-hmm. some people it works and for some people it doesn't. And for some mm-hmm. people they don't want kids. For some people they mm-hmm. do want kids. And some people have osteoporosis and some people have brain fog from the get-go. So you mm-hmm. really have to think of it as an individualized plan. I definitely agree. So you mentioned earlier how listeners can find a doctor, but how can they connect with you if they want to work with you or learn more about what you do? I'm on social media on Instagram at Dr. Ty, T-A-Y, Ahmed, A-H-M-E-D. You can hear other podcasts on the podcast by just searching my full name, T-A-Y-Y-A-B-A, Ahmed. And if you would like to schedule specifically with me, you can always reach out to me and I can have someone from my office give you a call. But I definitely encourage reaching out. If you're in a state where there's no physiatrist, reaching out to a pelvic floor physical therapist and then finding out who they like to work with. I often have to do that because sometimes I'll get messages from patients saying, I moved to Europe and I can't Mm -hmm. find anyone. Who do I find? And usually the pelvic physical therapists are a great resource to getting um, additional help. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much. I'm definitely going to have to get some names from you in my area. I also ask my guests usually how they cultivate joy in their lives. Because I think oftentimes we, especially for those on fertility journey, we breeze by anything that brings us joy. And I think it's important to find the little things that can bring us joy on a daily basis. How do you cultivate joy in your life? I don't like to cook, but I like to eat. Um, So as long as I'm not the cook, I'm okay with it. Pregnancy is very difficult. And you know, you end up having some limitations with food. So before you're pregnant, enjoy food because food is like the ultimate love language. I think, I don't know if it's a, an immigrant thing or not, but really just enjoying what other people are eating. I have a great neighbor across the street who makes 
amazing Afghani food and I'm always like, I'll eat anything you make. Wrap <laughs> <laughs> it off and I'm like, this is delicious. So yeah, I think just enjoying like the little things of food and ice cream and eating with your family. And if you love to cook, that's even better. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. I, I love that because yes, food is something that can bring people together, create communities. So I think that's a great one. Well, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your time. I appreciate all the work that you do with women who are struggling with pelvic pain and those with endometriosis. So thank you for everything you do. Yeah, thank you for having me. I love talking about it. I, I love what you guys do. And I love that you understand endometriosis and it's more than just making babies. It's making people better. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much. The Fertility Journeys podcast. Thank you so much for listening today. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a review or tag us on Instagram at Fertility Journeys Podcast. This will help us to spread awareness and reach new listeners. Episodes drop every week and you can learn more at fertilityjourneys.org. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Please consult with your own physician as information shared on this podcast is not a substitute for medical advice.